Thank you so much. Thank you for the invite and allowing me to be here. It's wonderful. I don't get here as half as often as I would like, but probably twice as often as you deserve. <laughs> but it really has been a good weekend. It's been busy, but it's been good. And uh, I know some of the faces, some of you are strangers, even though you're family. And uh, I want to share a word to encourage us because we're living in tough times, right? Let, let's, you know, let's not deny the reality. It's quite sobering, tough times. In fact, the best thing about preaching for me is I get to take this off for a while. <laughs> and uh, I think many of us have been uh, struggling either with, um, with COVID or the societal effects of COVID, lockdown. I must admit, when, when the COVID lockdowns first started, I thought it was the best thing ever. As an introvert, <laughs> the introverted side of me was like, hey, I don't have to see people, it's fantastic. But even introverts need people, and it wears on. And I think the disconnection, even disconnection from being able to do church properly, um, you know, many of us have, have been sick or had loved ones who've been sick or passed away in December. My wife got two phone calls while I was in hospital saying, uh, they thought I was about to die. By God's grace, I'm still here. Grace to me, probably punishment for you guys, but I'm still around. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a traumatic time. And in the midst of that, we have uh, greater financial stresses for many of us. Um, we, we have spiritual uh, pressure and then the thought of, um, you know, the government uh, controlling us and, and all these stories about coming persecution. It's quite a scary time to be alive, right? If we're honest. I think um, we don't have to give in to that fear, but let, let's be realistic. It's, and I'm not saying it's the toughest time that people have ever lived. I think, you know, the bubonic plague was probably a little worse than, uh, than COVID. But still, we have our pressures. Some of us are separated from our families. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges that we face. And in the midst of all that, we're called to live in the middle of a crooked and depraved generation. And I know lots of people post things about our government and, you know, incompetence and corrupt. It's not a South African thing. That's a human thing. I mean, you look around the world. People say power corrupts. I think it's this. I think man is corrupt and power just gives him an opportunity to show how corrupt he is. Yeah. And that's just the world we live in. But we're called not, not we're not called out of the world. Jesus in, in John's gospel, he said, I pray for you guys. Jesus back then was praying for us. He said, I pray for those who will believe, who will come after these. And I pray not that they will be taken out of the world but that there'll be a light in the world, that there'll be something about us as we live in this world, that there'll be something different about us. And I want to preach to encourage us because I think some of us have got into survival mode. And we see maybe a coming persecution and it's like, as long as I can just survive. And God hasn't called us to live in survival mode. And so the title of my preach, I don't often give my preaches titles, but I've given this one a title because I think it's helpful, and it's called Revival, Not Survival. God hasn't called us to merely survive and kind of 
crawl along and, and get to heaven by the, the skin of our fingers and go, we just about made it. But he's called us to be a light to this world, to be salt to this world, to bring the gospel to this world. And the worse the world has it, the easier it is to preach the gospel. You know, there's a key verse in, in Revelation. I don't know about you, but I often used to ask myself, what is the point of what happens in Revelation? All this terrible stuff. God, why does there have to be a tribulation? Like, is it just you, you throw a bit of a wobbly at the end of all things and you've had enough and you just get angry? But there's one verse that, that gives me um, insight into, into that thing. And it's, it talks about all these bad things that happen and it says, still they did not acknowledge God. And the point is God allows bad things to happen that people would despair of holding their hope in the things of this world and turn to him. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. God shouts at us in difficult circumstances. And there's people around us right now who've put their faith in their own health and strength, and suddenly that faith has disappeared. They put faith in government institutions. They put faith in their jobs or in finances or in family. And all of these things are being removed. It goes, so what can you put your faith in? And we've got the answer. Which means two things. One, we've got to live like we've got the answer. In other words, if we go around looking like we've been baptized in vinegar, there's no hope for anybody else. But we've also got to tell people the answer. You know, there's an old cliche. Wherever you go, preach the gospel. And if you must, use words. What a load of rubbish. I know why that's said. It said that said kind of um, to counterbalance people who act like complete heathen and then try and preach the gospel. People must see our lives. But let's do a quick straw poll. How many of you were saved without anybody actually explaining the gospel to you? How many of you were saved only by looking at people's lives? No, you weren't. You may have looked at people's lives and said, there's something different about you, what is it? But that, unless it's explained, they'll never know. And so there's two things that we're called to do. We're called to live differently and we're called to speak differently. And if we do, then even the very enemies of God can be brought to a place of glorifying Jesus. And I want to share a story from the book of Daniel, or a couple of stories, because the stories build on themselves. And it, they all point to the same thing. God is in control, no matter how bad things seem to be. And he sometimes puts us in the midst of the worst circumstances, because when it's darkest, the light shines brightest. And sometimes he wants those light carriers in the darkest places. So next time you say, why me? Maybe that's the answer. Okay, so we're going to have a look at the book of Daniel. And those of you who followed Andrew's series on Babylon, you'll know some of the concepts that we're going to cover, but I'm going to recap very briefly. So what we see is that about in the 6th century before Christ, so this is a long time ago, this is 2,600 years ago, roughly, we have the people in Jerusalem, in Judah. The, the kingdom of Israel has been separated into two. The, the northern part is Israel, and years before this, they've already been taken into exile. 
And the people of Judah for a while thought we're safe because we are really God's privileged favorites. And we've got Jerusalem and we've got the temple, so we're safe. But actually they were deliberately disobedient and deliberately dis- and eventually God said, right, okay. And they were taken into exile as well. I want us to understand how bad this is. What this means is you're living in a city when suddenly an enemy army appears and you know that if they take this city, they're going to kill a lot of you. They're going to do unspeakable things to the wives and children. And then they're going to carry you on off as slaves, burn your home and take everything you have. I don't think we've quite got it that bad yet, okay? But that's what they're facing. And we're told the story of just a few of these people who were taken into exile. We're told the story of Daniel and three of his friends. But what we've got to understand is the relevance of that story to us. Okay, and the relevance is this. In Genesis 3, when man sinned, God said that the serpent will be continually at war with the offspring of man. Yeah? Satan will always be trying to destroy man. And even the story begins even before that, where Satan says to Adam and Eve, did God really say if you eat of this tree, you will die? Eat of it and you will be like God. And that's what Satan has been doing through man ever since, saying, instead of relying on God, instead of faith and obedience, that's what God required of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Faith, you don't need to know good and evil. All you need to do is trust me. And so obey and do what I tell you. So what God has required from man has never changed. It's always been the same. Faith and obedience. And Satan comes along and says, no, no, no. You can decide for yourself. You can rely on your own intellect, on your own systems, on your own ways. And ever since that moment, there's been a battle between the flesh and the spirit between God's ways and man's ways. And we see it throughout human history. And unfortunately, we see it throughout church history. Where time and time and time again, the work of the Spirit has been nullified by man relying on his own wisdom, his own strength and his own systems. And so time goes by and eventually we get the story of the Tower of Babel where man gets together and says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's use our own wisdom, our own intellect, our own strength and our own ability and we will make ourselves famous. And God says, this isn't a good idea. And he brings judgment. And from that moment on throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament and all the way into Revelation, that place which became known as Babylon becomes symbolic of that attitude of man's systems, man's self-reliance, and warring against a dependence on God. And so when we read the story of Daniel, and it's a, a true story, real events that really happened, but they form a picture for us of what happens when God's people live under an authority that is representative of Babylon. And that's us, because we're God's people, but we're living in Babylon today. You know that. I remember first time I went to Brazil, we went to a church, a really cool church called Bola Genev, which means snowball. It was the snowball church, because they'd grown so big like a snowball. 
And their worship was different. A lot of reggae and rock, or in Brazil they don't say the letter R, so it was hege and hock and hippie hoppy. And they had this big, they, one of their big songs that they recorded was Kaya Babylonia. And basically it translates as bow Babylon, bow down Babylon. We're living in Babylon, but one day you will bow down to God. But in the meantime, we have to live in obedience to God inside a system that's rebellious against God. And this is where Daniel found himself. Daniel and his, his three friends were princes. They were of the royal household. And so they were selected to come and serve Nebuchadnezzar. And the people of God in Daniel's day, see if this sounds familiar, they're on the verge of incredible devastation, fear of persecution. They don't know when the bad stuff's going to end. There's no end in sight. And humanly speaking, it looks like there's no hope. I remember two years ago, they were saying, or what was it? Was it a year and a half ago? 14 days of isolation to flatten the curve. <laughs> and now we're wondering, will socialize, uh, social distancing and masks ever end? I don't know. But it's like, how long, oh God? How long? How long do we have to endure this? And you can imagine the people of Israel or the people of Judah at the time asking the same question. But the promise in the book of Daniel is that those who are faithful, those who overcome, those who persevere, will be raised in glory. And part of the story of Daniel is, don't live for this life, live for that. Don't live for the comforts that this world can give you, but rely on what God can provide. And so, interestingly, the book of Daniel is written in three different languages. It's written, or in two languages, it's written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And Aramaic at the time was like the, the language of the world. Parts of it are written in Hebrew, and those parts are the parts just for the people of Judah, but the parts of, in Aramaic are for the whole world to read. And so even in this story, there's a, there's a, um, a desire in Daniel as he wrote it, for the whole world to read this and see the power and glory of God. And so the story starts, and I'm not going to read long passages because most of us have read Daniel or understand what's going on, I hope. If not, you can go home and read it tonight. It's really cool. And we see Daniel and his friends are taken into service, and there is an attempt to destroy their identity and create a new identity. There's an attempt to destroy their worldview and give them a new worldview. There's an attempt to destroy their reliance on God and create a reliance on Babylon. And every aspect of their own independence, own pride, own identity, own culture, they attempt to eradicate that and just transform them into Babylonian clones. And that is what the world is doing. You just have a look at what kids are being taught in school, what, our, what young people are being taught in college, what we're hearing um, on the news, what we watch on Netflix. Do you, know, do you know what the LGBT community say has been the greatest tool for acceptance of 
of gay rights in the world today? American sitcoms. Because what happened some years ago in sitcoms, they started having sitcoms about gay characters or putting gay characters in sitcoms and every single one of them was positive. Think about it. You've got Will and Grace, you've got Modern Family, you've got, and every one of them is a positive portrayal. And that was a large part of shaping American thought on the issue. And whatever America thinks today, everybody else thinks tomorrow. Or with the advent of the internet, whatever America thinks this morning, the rest of the world thinks by lunchtime. And so that's what's happening with Daniel and his friends. The first thing that happens, and men prepare for this, because this is a talk curler, they are castrated. So you think you're a man? You're not a man anymore. Satan will do that to us as men. You know, true men don't cry. True men aren't. True men don't bow down to others. True men don't submit. True men tries to tell you and tries to emasculate your, your Christian identity. And this was prophesied. It doesn't specifically say they were, they were turned into new eunuchs in the book of Daniel, but they were under the authority of the chief eunuch. And 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 18 prophesies and says uh, to Hezekiah that your descendants will serve in the king of Babylon as eunuchs. So that's the first thing that happens. So the, the identity as men, they try and strip away. And then we're going to give you new names. And this is important in a Hebrew culture because a name just, they didn't go through a baby book and go, oh, that's nice. There were missionaries in Brazil who were looking for a nice name for the daughter and they heard this name, uh, Janela. And they thought, that's beautiful. So they called the daughter Janela because this is a word they kept hearing. Oh, it's so pretty. It's so beautiful. What they didn't realize is Janela is actually the Portuguese word for window. <laughs> so, so in the Hebrew culture, a name wasn't just a pretty th it was It was a de declarative prophetic statement about your identity and who you were and what you were going to be in life. And not only that, Naming somebody was an exercise of authority. To name something was to exercise authority over them. So we see that in the book of Genesis, right? Who named Adam? God. Then what, what did God say to do to all the animals? Name, what, so what was he saying? Adam exercised dominion and authority over the animals. He doesn't find a suitable mate, so God creates Eve. Who names Eve? Adam names Eve. And then they have kids, and who names the kids? Adam and Eve name the kids. Can you see there? There's, there's a clear picture there that naming something was, was the, the responsibility of somebody who had authority. So by renaming them, the king is saying, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I have absolute authority over you, and I'm going to rename you. And in renaming you, I'm going to reshape your identity. And this is how he renamed renames them. And I can never remember this, so I'm going to read it. So Daniel, the name Daniel means God is my judge. His three friends that you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedwigo, I mean Abednego, <laughs> were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And their names mean Yahweh is gracious 
who is like God, and Yahweh is my helper. Can you see their names each identify a reliance on God? And their names are changed to Belshazzar, which says, may the god Bel, the Babylonian god, protect. Shadrach is, I'm very fearful of God, not Yahweh, of the Babylonian god. Meshach, I am of little account, and who is like Aku, another Babylonian god, and Abednego means the servant of Nebal, another god. So can you see their names are diametrically opposed. He's saying you've got a new identity now. You thought you were reliant on God. No, you're reliant on my gods. And to push this point home, he takes all of the treasure, Nebuchadnezzar, that he took out of the temple in Jerusalem and puts it in the temple of his God. And that's the symbol saying, my God's bigger than your God. That's the, that was the ancient king's way of saying, my dad's bigger than your dad. Yeah? And it's a declaration to the whole world that my God is more powerful than Yahweh. And that is what these four men are being told all the time. Does that feel familiar? Who is your God? You know, there's a recent thing in America where a bunch of guys got together to worship and pray. And a group of left-wing activists, the Antifa crowd, came in and, and, and sprayed burst spray and, and, and did all kinds of things and stole all the food. And we're mocking, where is your God now? Where is your God now? And it's easy to shrink back in that moment, isn't it? To be intimidated. And Satan wants to imitate you and say, oh yeah, so you're sick? So you've got no money? So you can't meet as a church properly? Ha ha, where's your God now? And he's like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Have you, have you ever wondered why Scripture talks about a roaring lion? You've all seen lion scent, right? How many of you have heard a lion roar when it's hunting? No? You've heard a lion roar. When have you heard it roar while it's hunting? It doesn't, does it? It's silent when it's hunting. Do you know when it roars? It roars when it can't get to the prey. And the idea is that if I roar, this prayer will panic, run from its safe space, and then I've got it. That's what intimidation is. And that's a tactic of the enemy. He wants to intimidate you and panic you and move you out of your safe space, out of your reliance on God, out of your place of faith, and then he'll snap you up. And just to reinforce this picture that you're completely rely on, reliant on me, it's right. We're going to feed you all of this food. And Daniel goes to the chief eunuch. He says, I can't eat this food. And there's two reasons. One is he wants to hold that my reliance is not on the provision of the king. But the other is this food itself was most likely sacrificed to idols. And so by eating the food, what, the, what they were doing was actually, in a sense, being seen to accept the provision of false gods. And we can do that very subtly in our jobs. Even in ministry, I remember a few years ago, Andrew asked me to relocate, and he was, I was really relocating to a, um, a more expensive area. Rent would be more expensive. Schooling would be more expensive. 
So I said, yes, I'd go. And then I thought, I better speak to Phil about my salary. And God said, don't you dare. Now, I'm not saying it's always wrong, guys, to speak to Phil about your salary. If you're employed by the church, sometimes it's wise. But what God was testing my heart was, where's your dependence? Is your dependence on your salary or is your dependence on me? And it's, this isn't a rule thing. This is a heart thing, guys. And it's so easy that in difficult times, some of us turn to God. Some of us just become more stubborn and rely on our, We just think we'll work harder and be smarter. And Daniel understood, no, no, I can't position myself to be a recipient of the so-called favor of these foreign gods. And so he says to the eunuch, please, just give us bread and water. And we know the story. The eunuch says, I'll, I'll be killed. If, if you look weedy at the end of this period, then I'm going to get killed and you'll get killed. And Daniel says, I trust God. I trust God that on bread and water, we will prosper more than somebody at a feast. And that's what happens. And when they're presented before the king, the king sees something different in these guys. He doesn't know what it is. He's not been privy, privy to the details. But he says there's something different about those guys. And so the story carries on. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he knows that his dream interpreters and his, you know, his, his spiritual advisors are a bit dodgy because he knows if he tells them what the dream was and asks for an interpretation, they can figure out an interpretation, you know? They've probably read all the dream interpretation books that you find in exclusive books these days. So he's even clever and he says, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. You must tell me the dream and then interpret it. And none can except Daniel. And Daniel comes before him and it's, a, it's incredible that he could interpret the dream, and that's a wonderful faith-building story. But also what the dream is and the interpretation is important for us. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, and its head is of gold, then bronze and clay. And Daniel says, this isn't the, the interpretation of the dream. The head is you and your empire, your, your dominion. But after you is going to come another empire, and then another, and then another. And we see from history what happened is you had the Babylonians, then the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And the feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire. And he says, in that time, in the time of the Roman Empire, a rock will be formed, not of human hands. And it will come and it will destroy the statue. And this rock will take over the whole earth and will never end. It will be an empire that never ends, a kingdom that will never end. And what he's saying is this, empire, successive empires will happen. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. But God is behind it all. God knows what's going to happen. When COVID happened, God wasn't taken by surprise. When you lost your job, it didn't take God by surprise. When you fell ill, it didn't take God by surprise. Whatever you're facing, it didn't take God by surprise. And though the world has all of these authorities that are trying to set themselves up in place of God, Daniel says in the time of the Roman Empire, this rock will come and it will destroy all man-made empires. And it will be a kingdom that never ends. And he's speaking of the coming of Christ. 
See, anything that isn't of Christ will set itself up against Christ. And in fact, the Antichrist, we have to understand the word Antichrist. We think the word anti means against. Actually, it means in place of. The Antichrist is one, by nature, he will be against Christ. But he will be against Christ by setting himself up in place of. And it will be, and there's an Antichrist system, John uh, the apostle wrote that there are antichrists, there is a spirit of antichrist, and then there will eventually be one man who personifies all of that. So already today there is a spirit of antichrist. And it's any system, any idea, any person that sets itself up in place of Christ and says, I can save you, I can provide for you, I am your answer. So in one sense, and I'm being very careful here, I can be antichrist when I say I'm the answer to my problems. I know better. I'm clever enough. I'm smart enough. I'm gifted enough. And we have to be careful of the spirit of antichrist, which is very strong in our age. But the amazing thing is this Nebuchadnezzar is trying to destroy their reliance on Yahweh He's taken all of the riches of the temple and put it in his own God's temple. He's renamed them. They're his slaves. And then this is his response when Daniel tells him the dream and interprets it. And you can look at this in, uh, in the book of Daniel. You can turn there if you like. It's important to understand that this was said not by Daniel, not by one of his three friends, but by the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And his response after Daniel tells him the dream and interprets it is this. He fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering, an incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. And so we see that by being a light in that dark place, by being salt, by being a godly man in the midst of Babylon, the very head of the Babylonian system comes to say, actually, Maybe your God is more powerful than I thought. One of my favorite stories ever, I was in Brazil. I was preaching on repentance and confession. And at the end of my preach, I called for a response and people came forward to confess sins. And God really did a work of, of deliverance and forgiveness on people. It was fantastic. And after that had finished, a guy came to me and he said, listen, I've got something I need to confess, but I just can't. If my wife finds out, my marriage is over. So I obviously think, you know, he's obviously had an affair. He's been unfaithful. So I sit down with him. I said, tell me, this, this feeling that you need to confess, is it from God? He said, yeah. I said, then you need to be obedient. And we'll walk with you and trust, trust for whatever the consequences are that God is bigger. So he started to tell me a story. And he hadn't been unfaithful. He was a businessman who'd got into league with some of the gangs in Brazil and was cloning credit cards from customers. He said, I can't do it anymore. It's, it's illegal. It's theft. It's, it's wrong. Um, but if my, my wife's such a godly woman, if she finds out, so I said, well, let's trust God. Let's speak to your wife. We'll walk, 
And his wife was gracious and forgave him. And so the next step is I have to stop doing it. But if I go to the gangs and tell them I'm not willing to do it anymore, they'll kill me. Literally. So we said, well, what's... And he came to the conclusion, I have to obey God, even though it cost me my life. So he phoned up and said, I want to meet the head of the gang. Now that in itself can get you killed there. You don't ask to meet him, he asks to meet you. So he went to meet with the guy and, before, and he's in fe- literally in fear that he might not make it home. And as he walked into the room, this gangster looks up and says, I know why you're here. He said, you went away for the weekend with your church and you've come to tell me you don't want to do this thing anymore. He said, yeah, that's right. So the gangster said, I'll tell you what, if you pay me X amount of money, I'll let you go. So he walked out of there like, this is a miracle, my life saved. And he came to speak to us. He said, this is what's happened. And we said, well, praise God. We don't like the idea of you having to give money to these gangsters, but if that's what it takes. The next day he gets a phone call and this gangster says, I don't want to mess with your God. I don't want any money from you, but I don't want to see you ever again. He said, wow. One man who was prepared to say, at the cost of my life, I will not bow down to fear and intimidation, but I'll trust my God. And that guy has been so incredible since. His life has changed. His marriage has changed. The gangster boss wasn't saved at that moment but it was a powerful testimony. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't saved here. He's just going, I see your God. Your God is powerful. But then next thing we read, probably inspired by the dream of this big statue, Nebuchadnezzar decides to build himself a big statue and says, everybody's got to bow down and worship this statue. And Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse so they get brought before the king. And the king says, uh, are you a bit slow? Let me just tell you again. When the music plays, you bow down or you get burned. And their response is an incredible response. And I've stolen their response many times when life gets tough. And they replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We don't have to justify ourselves. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we save is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Isn't that powerful? I know that my God is able to save us and he will. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down. Who can stop? a people with that attitude. I was watching a, a program on Medal of Honor winners uh, in America. You know, the Medal of Honor is the highest medal you can get for bravery. And there was one guy who was part of a platoon and all of his platoon saw these German soldiers surrendering. So they went out and it was a trick and they were all killed except one. And suddenly he's in this city surrounded by Germans and he's on his own. And he's got, a, he's got an order, hold them back. And he's one man. And this tank comes, and he takes out the tank, he, and he holds this, this one road for hours against, uh, like, an entire German division, just one man. And in the, in, the, in the movie, they cut to a modern-day officer who's explaining what he did. 
And this officer says something. He says, once you've accepted that you're already dead, it's amazing what feats you can achieve. I just thought, you know what? If we are a people who truly consider ourselves dead, that we don't value this life, but we value that the world can't stop us. And the world gets really, really scared of us. Because there's nothing like somebody who knows they're already dead. And this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God will save us and he's able to. But even if not, we don't care. And so they get thrown into the furnace. Even the guards who throw them in get burned because it's been made so hot. And while they're in there, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar says, I may have been bad at maths, but I'm sure we chucked three guys in there and I'm counting four. And one of them looks like the son of a god. And who would have thought it? But the very person of Jesus is present with them in the midst of the furnace. See, we love it if Jesus saves us from the furnace. But sometimes he saves us through the furnace. And I want to say this. If you're going through a tough time and you're saying, God, you could have prevented this. Maybe he could. In fact, I know that he could. But actually, sometimes his purpose for your faith and for a testimony to others is to be with you in the midst of the furnace so that others can see a marvel at the saving grace of God. You know, Scripture tells us actually it's God's grace that we're persecuted. It's his undeserved favor to be persecuted. It doesn't make much sense to me sometimes. But if you're going through tough times, I can guarantee you Jesus is willing to be with you. And again, there's an incredible response from Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king. And he sees this. And then they come out. They don't even smell of smoke. We had somebody come stay with us once who smoked. She said, I, I can't give up smoking. We, we were giving, she was in a bad place. We were helping her out. My wife said, that's fine. You can live with us. But if you want a cigarette, you go smoke outside and you don't come back in the house until you don't smell of smoke anymore. Middle of winter in Cape Town, this poor girl would have a smoke and then have to go walking for 20 minutes because my wife's got a really good nostrils. So one cigarette and she smelled for, of smoke for half an hour. These guys were in a furnace. They didn't even smell of smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar says this. This is his response. Remember who he is. He's not a nice guy. He's a bad guy. No, we don't sing that song. No, don't listen to us. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied me. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and the houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. So can you see there's been progress in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. In part one, he says, your God's pretty good. And in the second part, he goes, yeah, your God's better than my God. And I'm going to defend your God like God needs defending. <laughs> but that's not the end of it. Then we, we read, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. 
And Daniel interprets it. And in the dream, he says, you're going to lose your mind and become like an animal. And that's what happens. In his pride, and again, this is like the ultimate example of Babylon. Look at my power. Look at my riches. Who is like me? I am like God. And God says, okay, let me teach you a lesson. And he loses his mind. He goes insane. He loses everything. He's wandering around like an animal, eating grass until... He comes to his own mind. And then this is his response. At the end of that time, this is Daniel 4, 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I worshipped. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an, ever, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king. You like re- If I did a pop quiz and didn't tell you where this is from and said, who wrote this? How many of you would have said David? All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then he goes on to say, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 37, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. Isn't that amazing? Does that sound like somebody who's saved? Just to me. Sounds like somebody who was anti-God. Somebody who was anti-Christ. Somebody who was a persecutor of God's people. And the way God's people responded to him shifted his heart to the point where he began to be a worshipper of Yahweh. Daniel understood something essential. He wasn't called merely to survive in Babylon, keep his head down and stay out of trouble. No. He understood that God's calling to Israel, Israel as a nation, had a mandate. Do you know what the mandate of Israel was? We see it time and time again in the scriptures bring the people to God's holy mountain. Show the people that Yahweh is real. Bring them to worship God. And instead, Israel got it wrong and started thinking, we're better than the nations around us. I'm so glad I'm not a Gentile. And God said, wait a minute. I still have a heart for the lost. So if you won't bring the nations to you, I'll send you to the nations. In chains if I have to. And God's mandate for Israel is fulfilled in the time where it seems that Israel has been destroyed. When the temple has been ruined. When Jerusalem has been sacked. When it's in disgrace. And most people are saying, yes, where is your God? And in the midst of that, God uses a few men to bring revival. And it's a theme we see over and over. We see it in the book of Esther, don't we? 
Esther in exile. One young woman who saves her people and brings glory to God. We see it in so many of the books about the exile. And God is looking for men and women who will not be intimidated, not live in fear, not turn their eyes and their trust towards the things of this world, but will keep their eyes focused on Jesus, will not be intimidated, will not shrink back, will not compromise, and will bring revival in the midst of the most difficult situations. And some of you may be thinking, my workplace, I I think the gates of hell are somewhere in my workplace. You talk about Antichrist, I think it's my boss. Or it's my friends. When I was 12 years old on a school camp, I had two older kids come and put a knife to my throat and say, bow down in front of this fire and worship Satan or we'll knife you. At that moment, it felt like Satan was on that camp with us. And I refused and God rescued me. But whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, however bad you think it it is, I want to tell you this. Your mandate is not to shrink back, not to settle for survival, but to be light that shines bright and brings revival even to the darkest places. And you'll be surprised. Those who hate us most often becomes the ones who serve God with the greatest passion. Look at the Apostle Paul. There was no greater persecutor of believers than Paul. So do we have faith that God can use even our most difficult circumstances? Or have we lost sight of that? Have we lost sight of the fact that our God is able to save and deliver like no other God? Have we forgotten our purpose in this world is to bring revival? Let's close our eyes. If you would, thank you. I know it's quite difficult at the moment with number restrictions and everything. We, we tend not to have as many visitors. Now, if you are a visitor, I want to speak to you. You may not have even understood half of what I said tonight. But it might not even be that you're a visitor. You might have been around a long time but you've never actually surrendered your life fully to Christ. You have not died to self. Maybe you like Nebuchadnezzar was at some point before that final event in his journey where he said, yeah, I know there's a God. I know he's like this, but I've not actually given myself totally to him myself. Tonight is the night. This is the moment to say, I don't want to rely on my own strength. I don't want to rely on my own ability. I don't want to trust for the things of this world to deliver me from my difficult circumstances. I want to give myself totally to the Lord. I want to surrender to him fully. And if that's on your heart right now, I would love you to respond to him. And for me to help you respond to him, I'd love you just to raise your hand. So right now, if that's you, just raise your hand wherever you sat. Most people's eyes are closed, so they're not going to look around and embarrass you. You may have been in the church for years even, but you've never actually surrendered. Okay. I sincerely hope that means everybody here has surrendered to Christ. If you haven't or you're not sure, please don't leave this place tonight 
without making sure, come chat to me or Anton or Stefan here. Stefan's the guy with the beard hanging under his mask. He looks strange, but he's a good guy. <laughs> come speak to one of us, because there's nothing more important than ensuring that your life truly belongs to him. But then for the rest of us, if this message has been speaking and convicting you, I would love you to be courageous now. Because I love the Lord. He doesn't kind of often give us an impossible, he kind of grows us. And he gives us little bits before the big bit. It's like teaching a child to surf. You don't put a child in the big waves. You put them in the little frothies first and then build up. But the Lord is asking us to be courageous and be those who take a stand. And if you've been convicted and say, I, I need to be that person who doesn't shrink back. I, I need to change my mindset from survival to revival. I'm going to ask you to be brave and just stand up now as a sign before men and before God that I'm taking a stand for my Lord and Savior. Not just tonight in, in church where it's easy, but when I walk out those doors in my workplace, in my family, amongst my friends, in my school, I'm going to be somebody like Daniel who will not compromise, but will be committed to seeing God glorified through my life and my words in the lives of others. If that's you, stand right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mossel Bay can never be the same if this many people consider themselves dead. There is no limit to what we can do when we think we're already dead. And Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room, whether they've stood or not, that there will be light and salt in this world. And that when we come against resistance, when we come against temptation, when we come against persecution, when we come against insults, when our jobs are threatened, when our relationships are threatened, whatever the threat, whatever the intimidation is, our hearts would be that of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who know our God and say, oh king, we don't answer to you, we answer to God and my God is able to save and he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. And in our actions of total reliance on God and total joy in the midst of difficulties, we will be light and salt into the world and see the enemies of God turn their lives around and become those who worship the God on high who can deliver and save like no other God. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.